Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm your host, Jim Friend. Before we get started with our show, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Changing Our World. If you're involved with fundraising for a Catholic organization and you're looking to make a significant impact, Changing Our World can help. Their expert team provides custom philanthropic consulting services to help Catholic organizations create a lasting impression. Whether you're starting a new fundraising campaign or you're looking to improve an existing one, Changing Our World can offer the guidance and support you need to achieve your philanthropic goals. Just visit changingourworld.com today to learn more and check out the link in our show notes for easy access. Now, let's get to work. Well, welcome to Advancing Our Church. So glad that everybody could be with us today. I am so honored to have three very distinguished guests with me today. Uh, I am joined by Joe Gilmer, Scott Whitaker, and Bevan Kennedy. And uh, and we are going to have a conversation around the Giving USA numbers and the impact on diocesan work and Catholic organizations. And these are three veterans of development, and they bring a great, uh, I think, a great perspective, not only from their as diocesan, longtime diocesan employees and, and development professionals, but also because all three of you are in kind of different regions of the country. We've got D.C. and Austin and Manchester, so we're going to get a perspective from uh, different dioceses, different kinds of dioceses, different shapes and sizes, which I think is really always helpful and adds a lot to our conversation. But why don't we start start by kind of going around the, the, the horn here and just having everybody introduce themselves. And uh, what I've been doing recently with our show is ask people to tell us something, uh, maybe a little known fact, it could either be about your diocese or about yourself that maybe not everybody knows about. Why don't we start with Bevan? Bevan, welcome. Sure, sure. It's so great to be here. Um, as Jim said, my name is Bevan Kennedy. I am the Cabinet Secretary for Development and Communications for the Diocese of Manchester. I've been serving Bishop Obashi here for almost six years. Before that, I was at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I am coming to you from the uh, live free or die state of New Hampshire. And our diocese comprises the entire state. Um, and we probably one of the more interesting facts is that we're one of the least churched states in the entire country. Um, and meaning we have incredible opportunity for lots of evangelization, although our oldest church did just celebrate its 200th anniversary. So I'm happy to be here and uh, happy to learn as well. Oh, congratulations. Thank you, Bevan. Thanks for being on the show. Joe Gilmer, tell us about yourself and about your diocese. Sure. Thank you so much. I'm Joe Gilmer. I'm the Executive Director of Development at the Archdiocese of Washington that is in D.C., not uh, Washington State. Sometimes <laughs> folks will ask me, like, about Seattle? I'm like, Nope. Nowhere near. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, similar to Bevan, I've actually been with the Archdiocese for about five and a half years at this point, uh, six years come November. And and so we uh, continue to work through um, a number of uh, things here. And the lovely part about being in D.C. is that uh, it's at the center of activities, sometimes for good, sometimes for, for you know, a little more challenging, but it's a wonderful place uh, to be nonetheless. I was looking up uh, a, a trivia thing or two about D.C. that, that I would have found. And be like, I didn't know that either. So I'm going to give you two, Jim. Okay. Because I think they're really cool. The first one is uh, we actually had two presidents who kept alligators as uh, pets. Oh, I didn't know that. And (laughs) why? Um, And so if you're wondering, that's Herbert Hoover um, and John Quincy Adams. So if you ever wanted to know, there's something you can stump somebody at at a party. But from a geographic standpoint, I didn't realize this either. So when I drive home tonight, I'll have to check this. 
there's no J Street in, in Washington. Um, there's also was no J Company in um, even through World War II. Um, and the reason for it is that Old English, uh, the I and J were interchangeable. In fact, sometimes uh, Thomas Jefferson um, would, um, his initials would be T-I instead of T-J because it was interchangeable. And because they were so close, they didn't want to confuse folks. So there's no J Street. Wow. Excellent. Well, thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Scott Whitaker from the Diocese of Austin. Tell us a bit about what's going on there. Well, great. Thanks, uh, Jim, for having me on the show. And uh, Joe, you get the award today for the best trivia for Washington. <laughs> I will. I will. I will use that at a party in the near future. I am sure of it. Um, well, great. I am the secretariat director for stewardship and development, uh, and also the executive director of our Catholic Foundation in the Diocese of Austin. Uh, I have been in my role twenty plus years. Wow! Uh, if you can believe that, so I am like an old timer in the uh, stewardship and development world. Um, I guess a couple of quick facts about the Diocese of Austin. We are the capital city of the Lone Star State. And um, we uh, we have, I guess our claim to fame here is that we have really great Catholic campus ministry in the Diocese of Austin. So uh, St. Mary's in College Station will be dedicating a brand new church next weekend. Uh, for campus ministry. We also have the University of Texas, uh, Baylor, Texas State as well. So four major institutions of higher learning as well as our Catholic University, St. Edwards uh, here as well. Uh, and since we're gonna talk about uh, streets, Joe, I think it's important that if you come to visit Austin, you'll notice that all of our street names in Austin are named after rivers in the state of Texas. And they go in order from north to south. So. The first street cool. is Red River, and it goes all the way to the west, down west on the side of Austin, but south in terms of rivers, the Rio Grande. So little known fact about the city of Austin for you. How about that? Tremendous. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott, Joe, and Bevan. Really looking forward to getting your, your insights uh, on, on giving in your own dioceses and and just kind of in, in general here. I'm, I, I'm going to start our conversation with just some opening uh, comments here to kind of set the table. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of the numbers for the nonprofit sector. I'd like to talk about what that means for your parishes, diocese, schools, and the Catholic nonprofits. And then we'll finish our conversation with some recommendations or maybe some success stories or, or how you're viewing uh, your own development programs for the, for the next year. So the big headline in 2022 is that giving to nonprofits experienced a significant decline with individual donors being the most affected. Not a surprise given that individuals have been most impacted by the events of the economy over the past year. The total estimated giving dropped to $499 billion, which was a decrease of 3.4% in current dollars. And the big shocker is it was actually 10.5% after you adjust it for inflation. And I think inflation is a big theme here when we look at this report. The fundraising effectiveness report also found that the number of donors declined by 10% in 2022. Uh, giving to religion, our, our subsector, we found that 27% uh, of all donations received, received in 2022 uh, were given to religion. Now that's down. We all know that that's continued. Our share of the pie has continually gone down over the years. I was looking back at the same report 10 years ago 
between 03 and 07, we had about 36% of the pie, where today we have 27% of the pie. Again, inflation played a big role last year, giving to religious organizations increased 5.2% in current dollars, but they decreased by 2.6% if you take into account inflation. Again, that should raise red flags about how much our dollar has been devalued over the past couple of years. And then finally, according to Pew Research, 20% of the survey respondents reported that they were attending services in person less often than before the pandemic, which is not a big shocker to probably those listening to this podcast because we've seen less and less folks in the pews next to us. And that virtual attendance has become much more popular with 15% of the survey respondents reporting attending virtual services more often now than before the pandemic. So those are just a couple of opening comments to set the table for uh, our conversation today. I see, as I said, inflation playing a big role in these numbers. What is your take on the numbers and what are you experiencing? Perhaps let's start with your own diocesan appeal. And Scott, I'm gonna start with you. Yeah, great, thanks, Jim. I, these uh, these numbers and, and these conversations, it seems like we've uh, uh, rinse and repeat over the last couple of years. We've just been really trying to figure out um, what what is going on, uh, certainly as it comes to religious giving, the work that, that we're interested in. Um, from a Bishop's Annual Appeal standpoint in Austin, uh, we're, we're probably unlike or probably like many uh, dioceses around the country. We did see a, uh, a decline in number of donors but year over year we're still raising more money uh it just seems like every year we keep scratching our heads trying to figure out why do we keep raising more money from fewer people uh you know down another couple of thousand donors uh year over year and, and our own appeal um, and i find it so interesting because i am in austin texas um there is a I don't know, $13, $15 billion Samsung semiconductor plant being built just outside. Uh, there's a Tesla mega plant just near the airport that is you know, just being completed. So all around me, I see tremendous growth, cranes around the city, but I'm not seeing that translating into giving, uh, certainly not into our, our own bishop's appeal. So. Uh, we're probably like a lot of dioceses, I would probably say that. Uh, and we're just still trying to figure out why are we seeing these declines in number of donors and giving USA numbers continue to show us, you know, even smaller glimpses into what that means for us. Sure. So, Scott, I'm assuming that means if you have less donors, but the numbers are going up, then obviously people are giving more each year and making up the difference. Wow. Right. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Seeing the things like what yeah. we're seeing, which donor advised funds, we're seeing an aging population. We might even talk about this. I think yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Joe, we've talked about this uh, IRA usage really skyrocketing because we think our average age is extremely high uh, in terms of donors to our appeal. So. I'm sure that'll be something else we can talk about later today as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. Joe, how's it going in DC? Yeah, so it is um, uh, something here where, just to back up even a step about like, uh, how are we feeling? It's a funny thing how much perception matters, even if one individual is not worse off or better off in a circumstance. If there's a general perception of something, it can drive things, either sometimes good. Um, so a perception of wealth in 97, 98, 99, that, that dot-com era 
when folks were even um, taking uh, stock options in lieu of larger salaries, feeling more wealthy, even though in reality they, they really weren't um, at, at that point. And then the giving that would follow similarly with that. We've had the, uh, a perception problem that goes in the reverse. So we've had outright inflation that we know about. So it's not like inflation isn't there, but it's one where it the perception is that it's it's even that much worse um, in, in some areas. And, um, and when you have that feeling of being pinched, um, that reaction, you'll see it in forms of things like if you have pledges for an annual appeal, and, and we do, we have up to 10 month pledging. Um, what we have experienced in this last year and a half is seeing fewer people pledging. Um, and, and so that's a feeling of going, I'm not so sure, or I'm not feeling very good about this, but I'm still going to do something. So we see these redemption rates that, that go up, but the because the pledging usually drives average gifts even higher, um, in 2022, what we had was um, slightly lower number of gifts, slightly higher average gift. But if you look at it from a fiscal year standpoint, when we got into the second half, so the first half of here in 23, uh, what we actually saw was slightly more donors. So we finally got some recovery that we've been waiting for and waiting for with uh, post-COVID um, uh, activities. Um, but the average gift has now dipped. And so last year, the 22 appeal was grew by 4% but I was expecting it to grow by seven. Largely, the drag there was the mass attendance recovery just didn't materialize the way that we thought it was going to. So we were still down about 20% at that critical time for us in the spring of 22. And then later, um, we had good redemption rates and a higher average gift and some channel work. But that um, growth was stunted by about 3% or almost 50% lower than I was expecting. Then we roll in the first half of 23. And as I said, we're about flat. And I was expecting to get another 7% growth, the slightly higher donors. And it's one of the things, we just feels like we have a little bit of a weight on, on our ankles as we go through this. And that's, I think, a perception problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Bevan, you and I worked together a couple of years ago to put together the brand new New Hampshire Catholic Appeal. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that's gone over the last couple of years and what you're seeing in your own fundraising. Yeah, of course. Um, thanks, Jim, again, uh, for helping us get that started. You know, um, we are only on year two. So mm -hmm. the comparative data that I have is very limited uh, because our pilot last year was only half of our parishes. So we just did 40 last year in 2022, and now we have all 88 this year for 2023. Um, and so that registered household data, we didn't have that before. Giving histories now work sort of on year two. So we're trying to identify patterns, um, but it's just been very difficult because we only have about half to, to pull from and to look at. But what I will say is that very similar to um, what's been mentioned is that we do have an aging population. So even though the percentage of our donors is on the lower side, I think we're about 10% of people who have donated to the New Hampshire Catholic Appeal versus um, our entire population of registered households. We'd obviously like to see that higher, but those 10% are all of, mostly of certain demographics that have um, age limitations. So they are giving through um, a variety of different means. Um, as Scott mentioned, IRAs are very big as well. Um, but we look at that and we say, this is a big group of people. How do we be more inclusive? How can we try to engage, um, you know, our younger families in um, patterns of giving? 
so that at least we have many opportunities to reach out to them. Um, we're not quite there yet, um, just because the access, again, as I said, to data is pretty limited. Um, but just in what we're seeing so far from 2023, we do have a large set of higher net worth donors that are making up the largest percentage of gifts to our annual appeal. So while that is somewhat promising um, and that we've we've reached uh, about three quarters of our goal already and we have until March 2024 to, to get there. So I think we're we're gonna we're gonna make it, hopefully. Um, we've got some some good signs, but we really do have a lot of work to do to um, engage a larger percentage of donors um, so that we aren't reliant um, because I think on these higher level older donors, because I think that's going to get us um, nowhere, you know, in 10 years. So mm -hmm. I don't know quite what strategies we're going to be able to use, but I do think that that's um, a problem we might all be looking at and something mm -hmm. we can unpack. But again, as Joe said, perception is everything, you know, um, even when parishes got their goals, I think that the rate of inflation was the first thing they sure. started to speak about and say, you know, this is really hard because inflation is so high meeting this goal might be challenging because of this and, and our parishioners are experiencing that. So um, how do we move past that? How can we present um, a picture that is a thriving church, I think is something that we're looking to do. Absolutely. And it's interesting because you're in this unique position having only completed really one year, right, with everybody as part of the appeal. So maybe you have a little bit more flexibility than some of the appeals that have kind of gone you know, a particular way for the last five or 10 years. So that's a lot of opportunity, but also a more, lot to learn. Yeah. Exciting and yet terrifying. Exactly. At the same time, no, <laughs> it's exciting. Um, so you've all kind of touched on this, just the decreasing number of donors to your appeal. And I'm curious, are, are they, is that, are you also finding that in some of your other fundraising efforts and, and um, what steps are, are you taking now to try to, uh, to increase that recapture donors? Uh, Leibunds and Seibunds, and also to look for new donors. Joe, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a great uh, point to um, to all of us. We're talking about we're seeing trends. So the next thing becomes, okay, you're seeing the trends. What can we do about it? Right. So some of the things that we've been trying at the Archdiocese, um, you know, and some of it's going to work, and some of it is going to help, but maybe not help as directly as quickly. Uh, we've been expanding our ways to give. Uh, we've been promoting these other ways to give so that folks aren't just thinking about the checking account that they see that might be a little tighter, that perception problem again. Um, just as an example, we've been talking about IRA gifts in a number of environments over the last few years. We all have relatively older demographics. And so it's a natural place for us. But the expansion is, is something to really pay attention to. So I'll give you a quick stat. So we did a study of IRA donors that had converted from check or credit card, that they were credit card or check in 19 and 20, um, converted same donors, 21 and 22 to IRA giving. And the average gift went from $1,000, $1,002 to be exact, uh, to 1982, or nearly 100% jump um, mm -hmm. in that on the average gift. And be like, why? Well, a couple of things. One is that um, that type of IRA giving for an older donor demographic is one where they are uh, pulling from a pot of money that they don't feel a direct pinch 
when it comes out because it's been something sitting for a long time. Secondly, um, it's something where there is some tax benefit that if someone's not itemizing, which the, the tax uh, code change in 17, uh, plus folks that are older that don't have things that might rise to the level of itemizing, now you've got some tax benefit in the form of not realizing income. So it's this benefit, they go, oh, I didn't think of that. So our job of trying to bring that to them and then just feeling like I can be more generous with this. So promoting ways to give, offering as often as you can. Take a look and say, is there other things that we can accept without it putting up undue burden? Um, and then some other things um, very briefly on this, Jim, um, is that we found that our recurring giving also continues to grow. And so it's interesting, our commitment levels are actually flat, but part of it has to do with actually not a bad thing. It is a way in which somebody's giving way our system works is when we have a recurring donor, you don't see a pledge for 10 months or 12 months. It's the amount that month as it builds. So a $600 donor, first three months of the year is $150 donor. So at first you're like, what's going on? It's the recurring giving. So if you annualize that, suddenly you see a $300,000 jump. That's a good thing. That tells yeah. us we're getting yeah. more people locking in. So those kinds of items, I'm going to uh, just very, uh, Jim, and I, and, and I will defer, you know, and be very quiet for some of these other ones. Just one other quick thing. Outreach for programs beyond the annual appeal is something I think any diocese could also take a look at. Why? It would validate the diocese as a philanthropic option. Sometimes our appeals are captured so much that someone just thinks, I, I, I don't know what they do. Support for programs that takes a little pressure off the annual appeal if it's one that's really fundamental to the funding of the operations of an organization. And the third one is an affinity data point for major gifts and mid-level uh, donor engagement, um, where you've got partnerships that you don't see from the appeal only, that you can work towards these partner-level major gifts. So those are some ways in which working through that, that that are not out of reach for any of the dioceses here to say, oh, you can do that in Joe and DCs, but I can't do that here. There's all these things that I think that no matter where I would be in the country, I could apply these things and, and see if we can get some traction. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Bevan, how about you? How are you um, trying to recapture or find new donors for your appeal? Sure. Um, uh, we have lots of opportunity uh, to sure. find new donors uh, just because this is our first time as a diocese actually getting in front of all of the registered parishioners in yeah. the diocese. So we have um, the opportunity to actually spread the mission of the work that's actually being done. Um, and a lot of the programs and ministries that we collapsed into the New Hampshire Catholic Appeal were previous second collections that a lot of donors were not giving to because there wasn't really a lot of marketing. There wasn't really a lot of outreach. Mm -hmm. So we have the ability for um, most of those collections that just kind of stayed the same for 10 years, however long they were here. Many of them were 10, 20 years long. There wasn't any decrease or increase. It was just kind of always the same. Mm -hmm. So now um, those ministries are going to allow us, those ministries are going to grow because the annual appeal is going to grow. Um, so while uh, separate, uh, different programmatic giving can be helpful, I do think that us moving towards this appeal model has been truly beneficial for the ministries and programs of our diocese to be able to have greater sustainability in funding and development. Some of the other programs that are outside of the appeal, um, for example, our Catholic schools, we're seeing some of our, our every year, our enrollment for our Catholic schools has grown. We're one of the few places in the country where that is happening. So why is that happening? Um, and how do we help our schools, you know, fundraise better and reach out? Um, and I think those communities are ripe for data harvesting and trying to understand what's going on. But um, 
that being said, um, we have one charitable program that has um, the, the number of donors we really try to invite to participate in this charitable program every year has grown um, simply because we're putting a little more pressure on the individual individuals involved to invite non-Catholics into that. It gives us an opportunity to reach individuals from a charitable perspective um, to showcase, you know, the wholeness of the church, but also there's an, a greater opportunity there to reach out to those who may be interested in the mission of the church without necessarily being Catholic. So I think that's really, that's great for us um, to be able to expand that both from a relational perspective, but there's, there could again um, be some, some larger uh, interest in there in the charitable programs of the church from, from a non-Catholic donor perspective. So that's an avenue I think that we're really going to be unpacking, especially as this charitable program remains separate from the New Hampshire Catholic Appeal. That's exciting, Bevan. I, I hadn't thought about that because it's a new appeal. Obviously, you're soliciting some people for the very first time. So a lot of the donors are new. For, and, and so a lot of it brand might new. even be brand new. So it's about keeping them, stewarding them. And then I love what you're saying about the the uh, increase in enrollment. Boy, we will have to do a whole podcast on what's going on there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Every, our, it's incredible. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of that had to do with with COVID and, and yeah. schools shutting down while our Catholic schools stayed open. And sure. I think there was a big benefit there. Tremendous. Now we kept them. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exciting. Great, Scott. How are you guys handling uh, the issue of donor retention and recapturing donors? Well, I think it's it's a it's a great question and one that we continue to to try to figure out. Uh, mm -hmm. All of us are trying to figure this out a little bit. Um, one of the things that I, I kind of reflect on, kind of going back 20, 25 years of annual appeal fundraising, and kind of the old school model. It's uh, let's throw a letter from the bishop, a uh, an envelope, a brochure, and a number nine reply envelope, and just open the mail, and it's all going to be great. Um, I have found that that is simply not the case anymore. And I think we are extremely challenged as professional fundraisers today. I find myself doing almost everything possible to, to expand. Uh, Joe, love it, ways to give. Let's, let's look at all the different ways that people have an opportunity to give today. I think that's a great idea. Bevan, great points about looking at the programmatic and the schools and where are we with the school families. Um, I feel like it's, Jim, back to the point of I'm crafting many more emails than I ever did. I am looking at a social media strategy like I've never done before. We're creating segmentations in letters that like we've never done before. Um, and so it's just so many things we're trying to kind of throw spaghetti up on the wall and, and, and see what sticks and uh, trying to find out exactly what's going to motivate this next generation of donor. I think it's very interesting. And I think getting back to the Giving USA numbers that we talked about at the very beginning of today's uh, you know, show is if you look at some of the, the demographics, and I think there's some additional work that Giving USA has done showing that if you look at boomers, if you look at Gen X, you look at millennials, Gen Z again, too soon to tell, but in all three of those situations, giving to places of worship was down. Yeah. And not, not necessarily giving to religion, but places of worship. And so I think that's just a one little insight. Anything that we can do to study these Giving USA numbers is to let's take a look at some of the demographics that are associated with that and try to communicate differently, try to reach people differently, give them more opportunities to give, 
multiple ways to give. Joe, I love it. Back in the days, uh, the 10 month pledge, that was it. That's that's what we offered. And now I feel like 10 month pledge, 12 month pledge, recurring donation, gift across fiscal years. It doesn't matter. We'll receive your gift and we'll use it towards mission ministry of the church. Um, so I think going back to the Giving USA, that's a good thing for us to kind of look at and try to unpack. Look at some of those demographic numbers and to see what they're saying in that report to help us try to figure out what are some of these ways that we can reach out to that next generation of Catholic donor. Couldn't agree more, Scott. And I think it just speaks to uh, you're, you're right. I mean, we can throw mailings out there till you know, the cows come home, but uh, it's all about relationships and uh, and maintaining those relationships, authentic relationships. So, um, you know, that's uh, that was a big part of our fundraising here at St. John Vianney Center at, to launch our new advancement program. We did it one person at a time and uh, and we were very proud to bring on 105 new donors this year uh, and that is now our universe and next year it'll be bigger but um, but I feel comfortable with those 105 because I I can tell you that we have relationships with each one each person we either had a conversation or an email or one of our board members knows them and I just find that those those relationships are I, I believe that those are going to continue to flourish over time so um, you've all touched a little bit on donor advised funds and IRAs and family foundations um, Bevan can you say a little bit more about uh, have those become a bigger factor for you? I know you have a newer development uh, appeal, but have they become a bigger factor for you these days than maybe they were just a couple of years ago? Yes, I absolutely. Uh, I didn't even have my first exposure, my first donor advice fund until our appeal started last year. Um, and since then, wow, there are many different variations of DAFs that I've kind of had to learn by fire. Um, and there are also many different requirements that they have. Um, however, the, the easier we can let individuals know what those are and why they're, they're great ways of giving, again, that's just a huge benefit for us. Um, this month alone, we've had probably 15 or 20 ones that are coming in. Um, and a lot of the individuals that are giving through DAFs are, are really engaged people. We're finding too that there's a direct connection to those that are giving through DAFs to those who are engaged in their church that are present at mass almost every week and who already understood the mission and vision of the diocese. So being able to look at that and better sort of now we have an opportunity to move from donor acquisition to donor cultivation. Um, I think DAFs is such a great way for them to assure where their gift is going. So um, again, I have a lot to learn in this area. Um, but as, as Scott said, any way you want to give is a good way. Uh, so, uh, I would absolutely encourage um, if dioceses aren't already accepting them or looking into how they can accept them. It's just so wonderful. It's been mm -hmm. great. Excellent. Scott, you kind of touched on this. Tell us a little bit about your work uh, or how you're approaching donor advised funds, IRAs, family foundations. Are they playing a bigger role in your shop than they were a few years ago? Yeah, you'll see a theme here. We're going to continue it on, Bevan. Uh, absolutely an increase in that, an uh, increase in that number. Uh, we've actually found so much uh, in the area of IRAs. Uh, Joe, I'm going to go back and do a study myself and look at that because uh, I find that statistic fascinating. Uh, with the increased amount average gift going up uh, as they transition away from you know standard check or 
uh, you know, gift that way uh, to an IRA. And the, big, and the big thing you want to do, Scott, is not just, oh, what are my check average gift and my IRA, but to go, who was a check donor two years ago? Mm-hmm. And they've renewed, and now they're renewing with IRA. Yeah. What do they look like as a donor today? Yeah, it's yes. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, we've tried to, I, I would say to more specifically to your point, Jim, one of the things that we've tried to do is uh, really tag team a lot of our mailings and a lot of our emails, those strategies. So uh, I'm always including things like a PS, uh, have you considered doing this uh, in IRA or something like that, or a donor advice fund? If it's not with our foundation, we know that they have tons of donor advice funds through so many other charitable vehicles. Uh, you know, around the country. So they may not even be thinking about that because they may have it with another uh, another institution, a donor advice fund. Um, mm-hmm. So we're doing buck slips. We're doing things like that into our mailings and just always trying to remind people. Um, once uh, we've done an age append on our, on our database, looking at this, if you're turning 70, I want you thinking about an IRA a couple of years in advance uh, of what that may look like for you as well. So we're absolutely turning our marketing strategy uh, around on those because we have identified that as a key key, key issue for us uh, going into this year's appeal. Wonderful. How about you, Joe? You touched on it a little bit yeah. already. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I would say that when, when I'm looking at, at donor advised fund gifts, um, first thing that should jump out to anybody is that if somebody's using a DAF, even if you don't have as much visibility into it, say, as a family foundation that's got a 990 they've got to um, submit and you can do research on, it is a strong in, indicator of philanthropic intent focus. So these are folks that even if they're not giving very much to you right now, they're thinking enough to set up a separate fund to make to make gifts or to think about the future. I would be treating them very much like I would be treating a high um, propensity plan giving donor uh, or a major gift donor with a lot of capacity. You just don't um, have the access or affinity quite yet, but you're working on it. And mm-hmm. so that's a good thing to look for. It. And uh, how do you find them? Uh, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. Uh, pay attention to the checks that come in if it says Fidelity or such such foundation, um, you know, uh, kind of thing. Uh, check number usually can be a giveaway, also for IRA gifts. Big long check numbers, probably a corporate gift, a found a DAF gift, or an IRA gift because it's coming from an administrator, as opposed to a personal checking account. Um, so there's a couple of things that you can kind of catch it. If you've got the resources to be able to do an append, you can actually do an append to to find folks who own a DAF in your database, they just may not be giving to you via that DAF. They might be writing separate checks, but there are all ways to give you an indicator. Um, I would say the other thing to watch with with DAFs is that, because I have one myself, if you go to make a gift to an organization, make sure you call all the major DAF um, uh, outfits and make sure that you're in their database and that you're named easily and properly like as people know you. There's another Archdiocese of Washington. In Washington, it's the Eastern Orthodox, and that's their kind of more umbrella. And um, it, I, I can't tell you probably how many gifts that might have gone there, and someone would never know. I mean, they're not going to know it. this EIN is supposed to be us. They're not looking that deeply. So double-checking that is going to be important so it, it gets to you. But the other thing to know, too, is many of those gifts are going to come through. They're going to look unrestricted, but they may not be. It's a good opportunity to call. Why? Because that way of giving, if you were to type in, um, Archdiocese of Washington, we find you, bang. Um, If you were to type in, I want this to go to XYZ program, they can do it. It's just there's going to be a a manual review that might take two extra days. So donors might have caught on to that, and they just go, I'm just going to send it unrestricted. 
and then they might not remember to call you to say, oh, it's meant for the appeal or it's meant for this and you just get this gift in. So it's a good opportunity to call and find out and also generate that conversation. So there's a couple of things, uh, you know, when I'm thinking with DAFs, they are becoming a bigger piece of it because it's an easier access point and it really does make um, things a whole lot easier once you start to use them. And you're gonna see that more and it's got all these indicators. And so it's like IRA giving, pay close attention to this because it'll, take you down a pathway of potential stronger relationships with folks with some capacity to really make a difference. Excellent. Excellent. So I want to, um, coming towards the end of our conversation, but I want to uh, touch on a couple more topics. One would be, uh, we've all heard a lot about the use of AI and, uh, and different fields and ways in which it's, it's obviously going to impact all of our lives. And, and it already is in, in many ways. Um, how are you thinking about AI? Are you using it now in your development shop around either content creation, around research, around donor research and, and Intel? Uh, how are you or, or how are you thinking about using AI? Bevan, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, I think one of the more um, readily accessible ways that we've already sort of looked at how um, AI can enable uh, development specifically. Um, I also oversee communications in my diocese, just the result of being a small shop. Um, but how we can utilize um, the, these, uh, the GPTs, the generative uh, texts um, in our own fundraising. You know, you have systems now where you can feed it, you know, a bunch of documents and um, it'll put together what it thinks language that you use or language that identifies your brand and being able to put that into a donor letter, a thank you letter, a an outreach or something even as uh, long form as a description of the New Hampshire Catholic Appeal in case we want to rethink how we do that. So I think AI has a lot of capabilities in that sense from a communications perspective and how we communicate with our donors. Um, it doesn't allow for the individualization though, which I can see as somewhat problematic because as we, you know, the Diocese of Manchester moves into, you know, donor cultivation and cultivating relationships, um, I think that this could be a potential problem. It may help blanket a large population, but I think that individualized communication is something that, you know, lacks so far in that, in that um, automated text generator. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other side of this is just greater data analysis, being able to really look at um, greater uh, pieces that we didn't even think about what we need in terms of how we solicit and cultivate donors um, because we're now able to look at um, affinity, what they've given to in the past beyond just net worth. So there's a lot of capabilities in um, artificial intelligence in just data mining and being able to put together profiles that we never thought that could really exist in um, the fund fundraising and development world. So I think there's a lot of value just in being able to put that together. Um, could be potentially a little bit scary to a donor how much we may know about them in the future. But I do think that that's something that's coming up in the development world that we're really going to be able to see just fly off the charts in terms of what we know about our donors and what we're going to be able to actually capture um, through AI. So those are just kind of two things that I picked yeah. out from the top of my head that we're really looking at if we're not already using. Mm, great so points, Bevan. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, technology is deflationary. It's supposed to make things a little cheaper and 
that information becomes to us at a far less price than it used to. It's amazing. Scott, how about you? How are you uh, thinking about AI these days? Yeah, we're, we're, we're certainly thinking about it, uh, trying to figure out its role <laughs> and place. Uh, the church, I think, has always been known to be a bit of a laggard in some of these things. Uh, Bevan, to your point, the scare, uh, fear of what this may mean, uh, I think, is is appropriate you know, response from the, from the church. Uh, I would say a couple things that I would uh, mention would be one content creation, I think would be a key one. Uh, and I love this from a, you know, from a small development office that might have one or two people, if this might be a real value to, to that organization. Uh, the second thing, you know, that I would say is uh, automation, I think is something that is a pretty critical way to look at things now. So if we're looking at how do I communicate with uh, a number of donors throughout the year, if you think maybe of, an, of a model of a development office at a, 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 at a college or a university, and they've got a portfolio of 100 donors and they spend a lot of their time doing that, that's really not where most diocesan offices are. So this is where maybe this automation and AI can really extend that for us in diocesan development while we still play catch up to our, our colleagues and friends in the university world. So a couple of quick thoughts on AI and, and automation that I think might be something to look at going in the next uh, in the next few months, a couple of years. Great point, Scott. I appreciate that. Joe, how are you guys thinking about AI? Yeah, I think, you know, when when we take a look at um, some of our screening, we're, we're now looking at and, and implementing second and third level uh, type of uh, appends. So I'll give you an example of something we're working on right now relating to um, uh, cryptocurrency uh, donation propensity. So in something like that, you might think, oh, well, you just use an age append and then we'll take our younger donors and uh, that's how we'll approach. And it might be a good start to something, but it's pretty broad broad stroke, um, you know, for that. And so we're actually working with a, a firm that is scraping metadata on social media um, chats um, across the entire internet, which you can only do with AI um, to pull off that kind of level of, of, of data scraping, not just finding out who's talking about um, uh, uh, crypto and tying that back to uh, donors that we've got in our database or to be able to do a modeling, to do a, a likeness modeling, but further to see who's talking positive things in that metadata. Now that might sound really, really scary, like, whoa, like, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's a way to do it. I will tell you that in terms of, am I going to turn my customer service over to chat GPT? Um, no, not quite yet. Uh, for two reasons. One is that while it might be able to fool quite a few people, it only takes one to say, I'm talking to a bot. And uh, and they start talking to church and say, you know, the archdiocese is doing now, you know, they got bots. They won't even talk to us personally like that bad person I don't want. But the area where I, uh, I, I also am uh, still watching a little concerned about is that chat GPT, for example, uh, certain different people do tests on it. And one was uh, an outfit uh, that is a, um, a, a, a physics um, group in Columbia University, and they did a a test of ChatGPT taking a physics exam. And it passed, it got about 70%, it passed, but it was missing on questions that you wouldn't think it would miss. And then further, there's a weird thing that sometimes happens where there's a, a, an incorrect statement that comes through. And then if you ask that ChatGPT even further, it will uh, argue 
with you effectively and and double down and triple down on a, a you know I've, an incorrect fact. It's you would think the facts would be what to get and that the nuances would be difficulty, but it's sometimes the other way around. So there's a lot of work there before you're replacing people to, to answer the phones. But there is more and more of this coming into it. And even folks who say, well, I don't do anything with AI. You probably do. You just don't quite know it, depending on who you're using for different vendors for things. Yeah, I would agree from my own experience over the last year. I, I, I look at it the same way I do wealth screening. It's a starting point. You know, when you do wealth screening, some of that information that comes out on a donor can be very accurate. Some of it isn't accurate at all. You could have a completely different gym friend from a different state. Uh, and so I, I look at it as a starting point. I, I've used it a little bit in creating some summaries, uh, maybe a little bit in beginning. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm having a creative block on a letter, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask it for some ideas. Uh, and usually that'll, that'll help me jock into a, a, in a particular direction. Um, but I think we have to be careful in, in how much trust we put into it, how much faith we put in. I think it's kind of trust but verify. Um, I, I, I did hear there some college students have been using it for college essays and such, and uh, a couple of them got busted on it. So we, we do have to be careful that, uh, you know, and, and it should never replace, never replace human communication. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, um, why don't we uh, kind of go around the horn here real quick. And, and uh, but my, my last question here is wrapping up our conversation around giving USA, around giving in general, I, I think as we look at it, we're not just looking at obviously a church problem. It's a societal issue. The the, the less the, the lacking number of donors, the lacking generosity that we see, um, and it, it is symptomatic of kind of where we are at. Um, where do you think it's possible? I think my question is to turn this around. Uh, can we turn around these numbers in a positive direction? Are we just experiencing a dip, or are we looking at maybe perhaps the beginning of a longer term trend? Uh, Scott, why don't we start with you? Well, I'm would be ever the optimist. I think that absolutely we can turn this trend around. Uh, I think uh, uh, Americans are incredibly generous and resilient, and I think we'll be able to uh, to do this. But I do think it takes some work on our part. And from a church standpoint alone, um, we're going to have to find ways that we can connect our tradition of the church with new advancements and technology and communications and marketing and development in order to do this uh, the right way to turn this around or right the ship, if you will. But I absolutely believe that we have incredibly generous people in the United States. And I think there's tremendous opportunity, you know, for us uh, going forward. So I think uh, we've got some, some work ahead of us though. And I think there's a lot of smart, great people who are thinking about these things. Um, and just this conversation today, sharing a couple of ideas here or there. Uh, all it takes is one or two really great ideas. We implement those in other places and we start to uh, to move this around. But I do think that's the case. From a church standpoint, I would say, we've got to find ways to connect with people in new, innovative and creative ways. And that may mean that we have to do business differently, um, if you will. And uh, Archbishop Greg Amond in New Orleans, my first boss here in Austin, uh, he was in New Orleans. He always said this. He said, Scott, we're not a business, but we must do business. And I always think about that quite a bit, that we must do business as a church and operate that way. But we've got the technology. We've got the things ahead of us. We've got all of this available to us. Just spending the time and in, in, in these conversations and listening to podcasts like this and going to conferences and learning from each other. I absolutely think we have tremendous upside you know, for us uh, as a country. 
Well, Austin is certainly known for its innovation and its technology. So uh, thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. Joe, how about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, a, a couple of thoughts. Uh, Scott had said this earlier, and I think it's a really important part because I think about things that, you know, what can all of us do? And, you know, again, doesn't matter if you've got a huge budget, small budget or everything in between. Scott hit it on the head. The channels in which you you're doing outreach, make sure they're integrated. Don't just send email because someone told you to send email and make phone calls because someone told you to make phone calls or post social media because somebody said you should be on social media, but make sure that they make sense and they're they're helping each other out. So a direct mail piece goes out and then you've got then a cadence of emails and social media that's raising the profile of a program, making it come to life. Having all those things, just think through that. It's, it's really not that complicated to do it and you'll find that it'll help lift all those boats um, for it. The um, Another thing too, from a diocese perspective, uh, I think every diocese to some extent or another suffers from this, that if you talk to the rank and file pastors, they'd be like, oh, the diocese eye rolls. Oh, the only time they ever call is when they want something. One of the things that taught us with 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 COVID and with the pandemic era was, was how can we help? And, 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 and I know so many dioceses had a hyper focus on helping parishes. And the extension of that is where else can you do that? Because if it's much more of a partnership with the constituency throughout the field, then you have pastors that the eye rolling stops and might say, yeah, they're, they're doing really good stuff. There's a reason why the diocese, archdiocese is here. It's a benefit for us. And you'll see giving uh, rise in the areas of folks that you're not getting as much of those touch points. And the very last point I've got here, Jim, is about coming back to the younger generation. I sometimes will hear folks say the, the, the youth today don't give. And I absolutely like, actually stop and think about that for a second. When I was growing up, you know, well before that there would have been cell phones and social media aspects and, and things of that nature. When did I ever give unless it was something very specific like a candy sale or something tied to a, um, a program running? If you look at today, the frequency in which you've got a younger folks um, making gifts, peer-to-peer -peer network making gifts, uh, pound for pound, it probably blows all of us on the on, on the call here away on, on a pound, of pound, pound for pound basis. So the trick of course becomes, how do you have those youth then engage with the church as stronger giving down the road? They've got a big, strong starting point that I think in some ways is actually stronger than all of us growing up. And so there's a lot of hope there. And it comes down to finding ways to engage on activities. I know some of that is not going to be the development office fixing that overnight, but in concert with the evangelization efforts of your pastoral ministries. Think about those things. So think about beyond what can I do from a fundraising, but like, how can I be part of the solution overall? You're not going to be able to do it all yourself, but being part of that solution, I think some special things are possible. This is not a downhill track and there's nothing we can do to stop it. I think there are a lot of really good things we can do and, and find that the engagement can be something where somebody goes, I like this, I want to support this, and it's not just an obligation feeling. And so keep, keep your spirits up on that because I think we can all do some really, really special things as a church. Oh, well said, well said, Joe, thank you. Bevan, how about you? Yeah, um, I mean, I think there's a lot to, to unpack, but I mean, I have a couple of, of just, you know, final thoughts, I think. What we have been understanding, you know, um, from uh, uh, overall giving perspective is that the younger generations and the younger families 
they may be truly engaged in the church, but there's a greater desire um, from them for transparency, both on how dollars are used, how operations are set, how we are as a church accountable to what it is that they're giving. So I think there's a real opportunity for us on a sense of engagement to engage more donors is to really put that up front and to be very uh, transparent and showcase how dollars to our appeals or to the diocese are being utilized and being able to um, uh, confront that is issue head on because we can do that. We do have the data available and there's no reason why we can't offer that up. I think that really helps us reach a greater network um, at least in our diocese, of those generations who may not be given yet, but are a part of their church. We obviously know they have an affin affinity for Catholicism. So we have a real opportunity, I think, there to um, in engage them in that way, because that seems to be something that they want. They want information. They want more information. And how do we make that accessible and available to them? So that's just something I've been thinking about as a way to engage more individuals, because that's the biggest piece of feedback that I see from different pieces of research is that the millennials really want to be engaged and they want you to do the work to do that. So um, I think that's one thing I would look at. But um, also, as we sort of talked about, how do we look at the different ways to give and how we can showcase that from a communications perspective, um, ways to engage in, um, you know, the New Hampshire Catholic Appeal beyond just giving. Are there different opportunities there? Um, if you cannot give, there may be a potential for you to give in the future. So how can we engage you in a way that, yes, we have all of these opportunities available, but we also accept your gifts of prayer. Um, and just the third thing that we've been doing, um, Jim, with your help, uh, we piloted a stewardship program and just teaching about time, talent and treasure, what those really mean. Um, we got a lot of feedback uh, from pastors and, and just everyday Joe and Mary Catholic who did not know the teachings of stewardship. You may hear it in the gospel. You may uh, reflect on different pieces, but how that how you practice that in your individual life. Um, so, you know, putting that together in a practical sense, I think Jim has just was was absolutely great for us to be able to say, here's what it means. Yes, that's great. You may hear that in a homily, but here's how you can embody that in your everyday life. I think that may help us reach those individuals who may not be ready to give, but may be in a place where they want to engage in their church and they could be potential givers in the future and really help us build out um, the actual number of donors. So that's just what things that I've been thinking about and reflecting on as we look at um, the Giving USA data and the number of donors and individual giving has gone down. I think those are, are wonderful comments and a great note to end on with stewardship. That is, uh, that has got to be at the core of all that we do, our faith and our returning a portion of our gifts back to the Lord. And so Bevan, Joe, Scott, thank you for uh, sharing your wisdom, sharing your creativity, your energy with us, uh, and and some great thoughts on on how to uh, enhance the appeal, how to recapture donors, new avenues to travel down. Each of you touched on some wonderful aspects, and I know that I learned a lot from today. So thank you for all you do for the church, and thank you for your time today. All right, pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Thank you, everybody. 
Well, that's our show this week. I want to thank you, our listeners, for joining me on today's show. I hope that you found this conversation valuable and that it will inspire you in some way to take action and advance the mission of our church. And if this is your first time listening to Advancing Our Church, I hope you're going to stick around and subscribe. You can find us on all places where you download your favorite podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And for more information about our show, please visit our fully restored website, at advancingourchurch.com. A big shout out to my wife, Kristen, for helping me to restore that website. I could not have done this without you, honey. I love you so much. Once again, many thanks to our sponsor, Changing Our World. You can find a link to their website in the show notes of this episode. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Have a great month of August. We'll see you next week. Take care and God bless.